This is I'm Really Rich Forbes on Trump on Podcast One. And I'm your host, Maggie McGrath. On this show, we're diving into the world of Trump through the eyes and ears of Forbes reporters. We'll focus on the 45th president's impact on the economy, business, and wealth here in America and around the world. Joining us now is Jen Wang. She's a reporter on our wealth team, which analyzes and studies and investigates the world's billionaires, including President Trump. Jen, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So one of the things that I have found really interesting in recent weeks is the discussion around Trump's ability to make a deal. And that's mm-hmm. come into conversation, especially around the health care bill, which failed. And people have said, hey, I thought he was such a good deal maker. Right. But you've recently, in, in part of our uh, World's Billionaires issue, took a look at some of Trump's partners around the world and some of the deals that he has had that has fallen through. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Um, you know, we've tried to go through all his partnerships, uh, both active and inactive. And some are still ongoing, pay some fees. And we've found... Um, more than half a dozen where things either fell apart um, or he backed out um, or is now, you know, in foreclosure in the process of falling apart, so to speak. So the the AHCA was not the first time President Trump has had something go awry. No, definitely not. And especially, I think, around the uh, recession, uh, the financial recession in 2008, I think several of his partners did run into troubles where deals that he signed where they were trying to build real estate or, or resorts, they just couldn't continue. There are also other deals where scandals have erupted, political scandals or investigations, and uh, he pulled out after he won the presidency. So let's dig into a couple of these uh, half a dozen examples. Uh, which one stands out to you? Um, a few do. I think one that was interesting to me was Mexico, both because obviously the location, but also because of how far the project got. Him and the developers pre-sold about close to $300 million worth of condos in two condo hotel towers. And Donald Jr. and Ivanka even said they were going to purchase a unit for themselves. The developers never got any construction loans, so the project was never built, even though buyers have already put down deposits and were waiting and waiting and because of the financial crisis uh, they never got a loan and so besides very preliminary work uh, on the site nothing else was ever built. Another one that sticks out was the development in Baku. Where's that? Azerbaijan. Okay. And that one's interesting because the developer uh, behind the actual tower his dad is the transportation minister mm-hmm. in the country and so there has been allegations that he has used his dad's connections to secure deals. Recently, the New Yorker did a profile. What they uncovered is that uh, his dad and his family may have connections to Iran's Revolutionary Guard. Oh, wow. Um, which obviously have been accused of criminal activities, drug trafficking, and so on. And so that's a deal that uh, Trump pulled out uh, late last year after he won the election. And so I think those two definitely stick out to me. Maybe a third that to me is pretty interesting is his hotel in Toronto. It's a high-rise hotel condo tower, meaning they're condo residences. And then part of it are hotel condos where people can buy a unit and rent it out as hotel rooms. And it's interesting because it is a project that is completed, unlike a lot of other projects that fell through. 
was a project that has made a lot of trouble since construction to selling units to today, where about three quarters of the units are still unsold, and the developer couldn't pay back the loan because they've only sold a quarter of the units. And so now the lender has taken it over, and they're trying to sell the units in bulk to recover the money. So on the Toronto mm-hmm. Tower, why didn't the units sell? Do we know? So I think it, it's several factors uh, affecting the tower. Uh, being opening in the wrong time, not achieving the rates that they were hoping to achieve, and then later on, Trump's presidential run and uh, the fight between the developer and Trump. That's interesting. So it was hit by a number of different issues. It is. Um, it, it's interesting because from right from the very beginning, it was you know first the construction delays, and then that kind of led to it not opening at the right time. Um, and then buyers sued because they weren't getting the returns that they thought they were get, going to get. And obviously, having a bunch of buyers sue is never great for a tower's <laughs> reputation. And then Trump started running for president, and that caused a reaction as well. Um, and then they defaulted on the loan. So that was somewhat of a victim of timing, as was the project in, in Mexico, because that too was around 2008 when the economy started to go downhill. Are there any broad conclusions you can draw about these failed deals? I think it's really case by case. You know, obviously there are a couple that fell victim to the recession, but there are also cases where, say, for the project in Puerto Rico, Trump took over in managing the golf course, where the developer was hoping the management would turn the golf course and resort around. His management just didn't do that. They weren't able to increase memberships by much, and they weren't able to turn around its finances. And eventually, the resort uh, filed for bankruptcy. I think a couple instances where it's not necessarily a financial recession or a crash that affected it. So the deal that fell apart in Georgia, the country, <laughs> he pulled out late 2016. It, it was a deal that was affected a bit by the oil crash, as the Georgian economy was dependent on commodity pricing. The construction on that project, I believe, did slow for a while. Mm -hmm. But it was picking up. But again, the developer says that they terminated the deal because he became president and was improper, basically because of the emolument clause. He says it's because the developer didn't uphold their end of the deal. So it's hard to say, but I think it's a very uh, case-by-case type of scenario. So the situation that you just described in Georgia sounds a little bit like a he said, he said situation. The the folks in Georgia are saying that Trump canceled the deal because he didn't want to be in violation of our constitution here in the U.S. And Trump himself is giving a different reason. Right. So while the developer in Georgia is saying that Trump canceled the deal after he became the president to comply with the constitution, uh, Trump's lawyer told the AP uh, that they pulled out because the developer wasn't holding up uh, their end of the bargain in the licensing agreement. Um, of course, the developer in Georgia has denied this, and uh, he remains proud to have associated with the Trump organization. But as of now, this project, which they have been developing for several years, the status, you know, it's, it's a bit on hiatus. Jen, thanks so much for coming in and breaking all that down for us. Hi, thank you. Joining us now on Skype is Stan Collender. He's a Forbes contributor and is one of the few people to have served on the House and Senate budget committees. He's also an adjunct professor at Georgetown. Stan, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. So you recently wrote a story in the wake of the failure of the health care bill about how passing tax reform 
is going to be just as hard, if not harder, than getting a repeal and replacement of Obamacare. So what's going on here? Well, a variety of things. Now, I was talking mostly about the politics and the process. Uh, it turns out the numbers are also more difficult or, or are going to be difficult for uh, tax reform. But first of all, let's start with the basics. Tax reform is never non-controversial. Um, in 1986, the last time Congress and the president did a uh, comprehensive tax reform proposal, it took three years. It took two years just to do the legislation uh, and agree on that, and then another year to draft the transition rules. So the idea that Congress and the president will be able to agree on something uh, within a period of months is, is a little ludicrous, even though they've been working on it for a while. Second, um, one of the big problems with tax reform is whether it's going to be, quote, revenue neutral. That is, whether it's going to increase or decrease the deficit. And while Speaker Ryan and others want to make sure that it doesn't increase the deficit of the national debt, there are some others, including the Freedom Caucus, which caused all kinds of mayhem and chaos on the health care plan. They don't care whether it's revenue neutral. They're perfectly happy to make it to increase the deficit. So that's going to be one big fight. And then you've got the third thing, which related to the second, which is the border adjustment tax that Paul Ryan wants to do, that um, is splitting the Republican Party uh, right, at least down the middle in two, foot, two pieces and maybe three or four. So um, it's going to be very, very difficult uh, just, just to move this along as quickly as the administration wants to do, maybe even to do it at all. Broadly speaking, what do House Republicans and President Trump want to accomplish with tax reform? Well, look, what they want to do is lower the taxes on a variety of industries, uh, and maybe for corporate America in general, from 35 percent to 15 or 20 percent. Um, they say they want to cut taxes for middle-income individuals. We haven't yet quite seen proposals that would get there from here. But bottom line is they want to reduce taxes for people. Uh, that's what they say anyway. Um, the problem they have is that we have a deficit. We have a big debt. Those are big controversial issues. Um, and the border adjustment taxes, it, while it's, it's, it, it, they put it in, in economic terms, about encouraging people to produce in the United States rather than import from overseas and building American jobs. The truth is the border adjustment tax would never be considered was it, were it not for the fact that it brings in about a trillion dollars in revenues and therefore pays for the tax cuts for a variety of other things they want to do. That's going to be one of the big issues. Uh, if they can't do the border adjustment tax, does uh, the tax reform just collapse of its own weight because people don't want to increase the deficit or do the Republicans who are in control of both houses uh, of Congress, do the Republicans say, okay, if it comes down to no tax tax cuts or um, or tax cuts versus deficit increases, um, we're going to go with the tax cuts even if the deficit goes up. I mean, the whole thing about the border adjustment tax, while again it's it shrouded in economic terms, is just that it brings in the revenues they need to do other things they want to do. But it's pretty unpopular, at least with some of the sources I've been speaking with. I cover food and retail, and I. I recently was at an event in Washington, D.C., where the CEO of General Mills said, look, the oats we use to make Cheerios are grown in Canada, and we import those. So that's a cost we'd have to pass on to the consumer. But there are other industries that export a great deal, everything, big manufacturers in the United States, for example, who are in favor of it. And you've identified the exact political problem, which is the business community is, is not just split, but is split in four or five different ways with different industries, different economic sectors, all thinking different things about the business adjustment tax. That's not the type of situation where compromise is easy or maybe even possible. This is not the, a business adjustment tax. I mean, they're not going to go for half of it. It's either all of it or nothing. That is, those who are opposed to it are going to want not, none of it. 
no no additional taxes on export on imports excuse me such as the retail sector you were talking about you know this is going to be the biggest maybe maybe one of the top two or three biggest issues that we're going to have to deal with ta- with tax reform and it's not the kind of thing that gets done quickly it's not the kind of thing that a president says look we're going to do this and you're going to do it because i ask you to do it this president's already lost enough influence because of the uh, health care repeal and replace debacle it's going to have to be something that emanates from Congress rather than from the White House. So this is something that we'll be hearing about in the news for many, many months, if not years. Oh, absolutely. And in fact, I've been telling my clients that I don't think there's more than a, a you know, at best a 50-50 chance of getting tax reform this year. That is in 2017. Now, I think that goes up a bit in 2018. But it's just not going to happen quickly. There are too many people who stand to lose too much. In fact, one of the things I put in my Forbes article is you've got to remember that tax reform is repeal and replace on a different subject. There's an existing tax system, which means if you change some of those provisions, some of the big winners of those those people who took advantage of those tax credits and deductions are going to be losers, and they're going to be fighting like hell to stop it from happening. There are some terms that are used in this discussion and then you've used in your articles, including budget resolution and reconciliation. What does that mean? If in a congressional budget resolution, Congress assumes changes in taxes or mandatory spending, then it orders the committees with jurisdiction to reconcile current law with what was assumed in the budget. That's where the word reconciliation comes in. The big value of reconciliation, it doesn't make much difference in the House, but the big value of reconciliation is that it prevents a filibuster in the Senate. You only need a simple majority to pass a reconciliation bill with the with the changes ordered in the budget resolution. And so they will need reconciliation when it comes to tax reform? Almost certainly. It's hard to imagine that Democrats would would, would be in favor of almost anything that, that uh, Donald Trump and the Republican Congress would come up with on tax reform. The other aspect that you suggested might get a little tricky for them is the Congressional Budget Office, the right. CBO. And the CBO had a starring role in the health care debate when it did its analysis of Paul Ryan's health bill and found 24 million Americans could lose health insurance under Ryan Care, Trump Care, the AHCA, whatever we want to call it. How could the Congressional Budget Office play into the tax reform debate? Well, actually, it'll have a bigger role in tax reform than it did on the AHCA repeal and replace. That's because taxes are easy to develop into a single number, and that's what the Congressional Budget Office does. That number will determine whether or not the deficit is increased or decreased, how much revenues will go up or down or stay the same or whatever. CBO's analysis of these types of things in the past have scuttled some of the most prominent efforts to do things like tax reform or tax changes because of the deficit being such an important number. That's what CBO is designed to do, what it was created to do, which was give Congress enough information so that it can make decisions with a full amount of transparency as far as its impact on the budget. And you saw what it can do. All it's got to do is a release analysis that shows things not going as well as uh, the leadership promised. And the whole and the whole effort can, the tax reform effort can end up just going down the drain or being stopped dead in its tracks. Now, during the health care debate, I did see some commentary suggesting that the CBO's numbers, you know, they're not concrete. They can change. And people pointed to perhaps some variability with the numbers they uh, put forward with Obamacare back in 2010. What say you to those critiques? Well, first of all, let me state this as directly as possible. The Congressional Budget Office is the best collection of the best analysts in Washington. 
They are nonpartisan, almost uh, to the point of being political eunuchs. Their job at the Congressional Budget Office is just to try to get the numbers as correct as possible. And over the 42-year period, 43-year period that CBO has existed, they've done the best job of anybody. And the criticism of them has been largely a chance to discredit numbers before they came out that, that the Republicans knew. Mitch Mul Mick Mulvaney, the CBO director, the OMB director, excuse me, and others knew were going to be very damaging. And so they were trying to discredit them up front. It's not unlike the effort that Donald Trump made during the campaign to say that the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which comes up with uh, unemployment numbers, was wrong and underestimating the, uh, the, the unemployment in the country. Um, and and uh, you know and and also discrediting the media for reporting things that turned out to be true, but he wanted to discredit because they were damaging to his campaign. So this is part of a continuing effort. I, I will say this again: CBOs are the is, has the best numbers that we can we have available to the, to us, often used by Wall Street, uh, used by a lot of independent analysts to come up with their own numbers. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on what you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals during our spring Black Friday sale, like 19-ounce Bonnie vegetable and herb plants, four for $10. And pick up five bags of Scott's Mulch in store only for just $10. Whatever's on your list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417 while supplies last. Not valid in Alaska or Hawaii. Scott's offer valid in store only. See store for details, U.S. only. In the near term, what are you looking at for people who are listening and want to follow this? How should they craft their, their news consumption? What should they be looking for? Well, first of all, watch the debate on whether the tax reform bill has to be deficit neutral or not. That is, whether it can increase the deficit um, or must be, must be revenue neutral. Second thing to watch is not just deficit neutrality, but whether or not the Republicans can stay unified. There is every indication that the Freedom Caucus, the people who were the, the uber conservatives, conservative Republicans in the House, are likely to be as intransigent on tax reform as they were on, on health care. That is, want more rather than being willing to take half a loaf. Um, and if that's the case, there probably aren't the votes to get anything done unless the president's willing to work with House and Senate Democrats. Then that will essentially marginalize the uh, Freedom Caucus. Those are the three big pieces you've got to watch. Stan, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Call again. Will do. Joining us now to talk about a brand new Forbes economic index is senior editor Kurt Badenhausen. Kurt, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. So you just spearheaded a, an ambitious project to give readers a sense of how the middle class in America is doing. It's called the American Dream Index. And so what I'd love to hear from you is where did this idea come from and what is it? Once Donald Trump uh, was elected, obviously it caused a, a lot of strong feelings. He made a lot of promises in terms of what he was going to do. And a lot of his promises surrounded is uh, reviving the middle class, which has really been left behind to a large degree in the recent decades. So then over the last few months, multiple editors at Forbes talked about how we can attack this American Dream Index. So we, we came together and decided on seven factors that we we're going to look at. And instead of looking at it just on a national basis, we wanted to look at it on a state-by-state -state basis so we could identify areas, uh, parts of the country that were performing strongly and maybe some that were being left behind. We look at bankruptcies, building permits, goods-producing jobs, labor participation rate, layoffs, startup activity, and then unemployment insurance claims. 
and instead of just looking at one point in time, what we're really looking at is the trend line for these uh, different metrics, and that's what we're really getting at with the American Dream Index. Are you looking at personal bankruptcies or business bankruptcies? We're looking at both. And then when you're talking about building permits, uh, we're not just looking at the level, but we're also looking at a trend. So what industries are you looking at with this? You're looking broadly at state-by-state data in terms of unemployment and bankruptcies, but are you drilling down into specific industries? I know Trump has spoken a lot about manufacturing, for instance. Yeah, exactly. We're looking at goods-producing jobs, which the government breaks out, and that includes construction, manufacturing, mining. I mean, these are the jobs that really get to the heart of, of Trump's supporters and, and really get to the heart of the middle class. It's you know, the middle class doesn't identify with the doctor making $150 an hour, and he doesn't make an identify with the person making $9 an hour serving coffee. Uh, these are good-paying jobs. Sometimes in the, on the coast we forget that, but these are good jobs, pay you know, on average $27 an hour, and these are the jobs that have really been lost. Uh, and what we've seen over the last couple months is a huge surge in these jobs. Added almost 100,000 goods-producing jobs in February. That's the highest rate in three years. Uh, we had almost a hundred thousand hundred thousand person gain in January, uh, so, so we've seen a lot of momentum. Now, is this all because of Trump? No, obviously not. Uh, you know, he just took office at the end of January. Uh, President Obama's policies are in place, and there's been a lot of momentum in the economy. But there is something to be said. I mean, we, we've seen uh, companies have come out; they're hiring in part because they expect less regulation and lower taxes. So they are expanding right now, and that goes back to what they expect under a Trump administration. Of course, some are reiterating hiring plans that they put forth in 2014, 15, and 16. So you are you have to kind of balance what you're seeing, right? Is an announcement something that was buried in a footnote in a filing that they've now brought to light? But I guess either way, jobs are jobs. Jobs are jobs, and, and you make a, make a very good point. Companies don't decide all of a sudden in January, we're going to make a gigantic manufacturing move in February, and they've hired everybody. <laughs> uh, N- Nevada ranks on top of our American Dream Index, and one of the biggest moves that we've seen with Nevada in recent years is Tesla moving in there. Announced in 2014, uh, the plant came online in 2016. They've got about 1,000 people right now. They expect to ramp that up to about 10,000 employees uh, in the Reno area over the next few years. So I was going to ask how the the rankings shook out. So you guys set a barometer of 100 points. That's kind of the baseline. And you are going to monitor how states perform. Does their score go above? Does it go to 105? Or does it drop down to 99 or below? And Nevada was one of the, the gainers. It has a, an above 100-point score. Is that correct? Yeah, Nevada has the top score overall. Uh, they finished first at 108.8. Uh, they were up slightly in February versus January. Uh, and a lot of it is looking at the trend over the last, you know, we, we measure different time periods for the different metrics we look at. But we're looking at a trend uh, where it encompasses a lot of stuff over the past year. Um, and Nevada has had very strong uh, startup activity, 
building permits uh, up, a lot of construction going on in Nevada right now. I mean, the state is booming. Uh, it's very much a, a boom-bust type state. Uh, and then goods-producing jobs are, are up dramatically uh, in the state. Uh, they've been very aggressive in terms of uh, attracting new businesses. Uh, again, Tesla being the biggest score they've had in, in recent years, they're building a $5 billion gigafactory uh, outside of Reno. And once they secured Tesla, other companies started saying, well, we got to be there too. Uh, they want to be around the Tesla halo, uh, kind of the, the idea of the Walmart in Bentonville, where companies need to be in Bentonville because they want to be in business with Walmart. Uh, same kind of thing with Tesla. You're going to see suppliers locate outside um, of Reno around that area. And Nevada expects maybe up to 30,000 jobs in total because of Tesla moving there. Wow. Um, and then, you know, I'm a big sports guy and I write about sports a lot. So Nevada had a very big week uh, adding the Oakland Raiders moving to Las Vegas uh, for either the 2019 or 2020 season. No, again, Nevada stepped up big. They committed $750 million in public money to build a new stadium for the Raiders. Uh, Oakland wasn't willing to match that, and they didn't have a stadium plan there. So the Raiders are heading to Nevada, um, and it's the third move we've seen uh, by an NFL team uh, because if you put up the money, um, you know, the team will follow. So the, there's a plan for a stadium, but there is no stadium built. So that is a construction project that is to come for Nevada. It's a, it's a huge construction project. It's going to be a $1.7 billion stadium. And ultimately, we're going to see the Super Bowl come to Las Vegas, which will be you know this oh my goodness. crazy entertainment spectacle. The Super Bowl already is this massive entertainment spectacle. And a, a Super Bowl in Vegas is like the Super Bowl on steroids. It'll be... You know, the, the planet might explode by, <laughs> by what goes down uh, that week. That might even get me to come. That, that will be really the, the ultimate boondoggle. Nevada's doing well. I mean, it's a, it's a good story, but I mean, it's very much uh, it's a boom and bust type state. And, and right now, things are going really well. So let's go to the other end of the spectrum. According to the American Dream Index, uh, which state is not doing as well? Bottom of the pile on the American Dream Index is Alaska. They scored 80.7. Uh, more than 12 points behind any other state. Wow. Uh, n number 49 was Hawaii at 93.4. Alaska is really uh, in a spot by themselves. And, and it's a function of Alaska's economy. It's unlike any other economy in the country because it is so focused on one industry, and that's the oil industry. It's responsible for about 90% of government revenue at least one-third of jobs in Alaska are tied to the energy sector. And we've seen oil prices dropped from over $100 a barrel down to a low of $26. I mean, so we've had a bounce back uh, over the last year, but we've seen jobs just decimated in Alaska. State revenues are down. They've got almost a $3 billion deficit. It's the only state in the country that doesn't have a personal income tax and sales tax because they just rely on revenue from the oil industry to prop up the government. But that might have to change because they are running these massive deficits right now. So obviously, goods-producing jobs are down dramatically, 17% over the last two years. Construction's down. So Alaska really lags uh, the rest of the country, and, and that's a function of how important uh, the energy sector is to the economy. 
Are you noticing any correlation as to how a state performed on the index with how it voted in the 2016 election? That's what we wanted to look at. You know, are, are these states really struggling that voted for Trump? And there wasn't really necessarily a direct correlation. You know, we, we saw two of Trump's biggest supported states. If you look at Oklahoma, where he attracted almost the most votes, they're a below average state. Uh, and we see that, you know, almost across, you know, not across the board, but in different spots, we've seen, you know, where there's not really a correlation. States at the very bottom tended to vote Democratic. These are Illinois, New Jersey, California. Massachusetts ranks near the bottom. Connecticut ranks near the bottom. And these are states that have had have some fundamental problems mm -hmm. uh, where they're seeing an, a net migration out of these states. And so job growth has been very slow. Construction activity hasn't been very strong. And so, you know, the states on the coast didn't necessarily perform that well in our American Dream Index. And those tend to be the states that voted for Clinton. Did you control for how much geography might be available for factories? And I think of Nevada, I think of much more open space than, say, Connecticut might have at this moment in time. Not from a jobs-producing uh, standpoint. We're, we're looking at whether they've grown or subtracted jobs in those areas. I mean, the country as a whole is losing manufacturing jobs average about 1% annually. Uh, so if your jobs are going down, manufacturing jobs are going down 1% annually, that's good. That's par for the course uh, as far as this country is concerned. But, but in terms of that metric, we didn't control it based on the population supply or the area. Uh, but a lot of the other metrics that we look at were tied to um, where, where we're looking at un, un, excuse me, unemployment insurance claims that's tied to the number of workers. Mm -hmm. You know, they're all per 1,000 uh, employees. It's an interesting point you made that manufacturing, we're losing about 1% per year. So if you as a state are losing 1% per year, the loss is bad, but you're actually average. Right. Um, but on a state-by-state -state basis, you will see bigger swings. You can see it swing a point, two points from month to month uh, because the states are more concentrated on a particular industry or uh, you know, a major layoff in a state could have an impact uh, on the rankings that we're doing. So what state's performance surprised you the most? The state that really jumped out for me was Maine. Uh, Maine has been perennially one of the worst performers on our annual look at the best states for business. Uh, it's got the oldest workforce in the country. Uh, it's been a slow-growth state. It's had a big net migration out of the state um, in recent decades. Uh, but this, in the American Dream Index, they finished 10th overall because the trend has actually been pretty good. Scored 103.4. Uh, we saw bankruptcies down, layoffs are down, unemployment insurance was down. And if you look at GDP recently, the most recent quarter was up 4.6%, which was the fifth best performance of all states. What specifically is happening in Maine right now, do you think, that is contributing to that? You know, Maine presents an interesting situation because it, it's really small businesses that are making this happen in Maine. Mm. They don't have any of the thousand uh, largest companies in the United States based there. Um, and, and so it's really small business that is making this happen in Maine. We should note that we are only within the first hundred days of the Trump administration. So what do you expect to see happen with the index and what will it tell us as we move into the more mature stages of his presidency? 
Well, we're going to be updating the numbers monthly. The American Dream Index will be more reflective of President Trump's economic policies as they filter down and impact what's going on in the country. Kurt, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Maggie. And that's it for this episode of Forbes on Trump. I'm Maggie McGrath. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to get in touch with a comment or a question, email us at ForbesOnTrump at PodcastOne.com. Hi, I'm Clay Smith, host of Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews, the podcast for book lovers interested in interviews with best-selling authors, insider scoop on the hottest releases, reading ideas for book clubs and bibliophiles, and even tips about which books to skip altogether. So be sure to download new episodes of Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews every Tuesday. You can get it on the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe on iTunes. And don't forget to rate, review, and share. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on everything you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals to help you save during our spring Black Friday sale, like Bonnie Vegetable and Herb Plants, four for $10. And for a clean-looking landscape, pick up five bags of Scott's Mulch for just $10. Whatever's on your spring to-do list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417, not valid on Alaska or Hawaii. Bonnie offer valid on 19-ounce pots. See store for details, U.S. only. At the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.